Let's pray again. Father, we thank you for your word. And we ask now for your help as we read it to understand it and apply it. And Lord Jesus, we just sang together, uh, glory, glory, we have no other king but Jesus, Lord of all. Lord, so our allegiance is, is to you and to you alone. Help us now obey your commands to walk in your ways. Help us believe and understand your words. Would you be glorified, Lord, in this time together this morning? We love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, friends. Well, hey, welcome to FBC. So glad you're here. My name is Matt. I'm one of the pastors and just want to say that we're so glad you're with us and say that uh, Easter Sunday was such a blast. It was so great to, to worship with you and remember the power and the joy of the resurrection last week. And uh, again, the good news is Jesus is still risen. You know, the tomb is still empty and we get to continue to walk with him, the risen one uh, today. I want to invite you to open your Bible to John chapter 15, as we just heard Rick read for us, uh, starting in verse 9, as we continue our sermon series, walking through the gospel of John, little by little. In the early 2000s, there was an article that came out in the Washington Post titled, Why Won't We Read the Manual? And it outlines the frustration that manufacturers have, this phenomenon driving companies crazy, that people will buy their products, but then not take the time to read the manual or the info sheet that comes with it so that people learn how to use their products, right? Isn't that true? We get the manual or something comes with a little information sheet and what do we do with it? We throw it away. Or we stick it in a drawer, you know, maybe 10 years from now, I'll have a problem with my toaster and want to read this or something like that. Or if the car gets in trouble, maybe I'll start to flip through the manual. And the retailers lament in this article the fact that every year people will return perfectly good items and products saying that they didn't live up to their expectations or they didn't work. But in reality, the people simply never took the time to learn how to use the product. A handful of the answers that people call about, complaints and calls to the retailers, hey, this doesn't work, what do I do about this? They say a handful of those complaints, a large chunk could be uh, figured out if we would simply read the manual. And so they did some research and they tried to figure out what are the reasons people don't read the manual? A few answers were given. One, um, we don't have the time, right? We're busy people, don't have time to read this little info book, figure it out myself. The other answer that was given, we're lazy. We want to put in the work. Another answer, we already know everything. Thank you very much. Right? Or, or, you know, common sense is enough, right? I don't need to read a user's manual on a toaster. Okay, it's a toaster. I can figure out how to use a toaster, we'll say. Or the instructions are boring or poorly written, right? Pretty dry read, flipping through those things. So a number of reasons are given. Now I bring this up because sometimes I think there's a similar spiritual phenomenon that takes place where we say, you know, I don't have time to, you know, read the manual to to get into uh, the details and the manual is kind of confusing and, you know, it can be difficult at times. And so in John 15, you'll hear this image of the vine and the branches that we've seen for a few weeks now. And some of us will be like, hey, I got it. All right, Jesus, you're the vine. We're the branches. Stay connected to you. It's all I need to know. Off we go into a flourishing spiritual life. And if that's you, 
Love the eagerness. Love the, the energy and the excitement. And yet we know that in order to grow to maturity, to develop as followers of Jesus and be fully formed and healthy, we need to take time and learn how to follow him and learn what that means for various areas of our lives. And so what Jesus does here in John 15, after giving us this image of the vine and the branches, is he gives us some further explanation in verses 9 through 17. Here's some more details. Here's some more concepts about what that's going to look like when it's lived out in your life. Here's a couple, you know, bullet points and chapters in the user's manual, you could say. So the last few weeks, again, just a little more context, we've been given this image, if you haven't been with us, of the vine and the branches, John 15, 1 through 8. And I want you to think with me about some of the main points that Jesus has given us about our life with God. First, he says what? He is the vine. He's the true vine. He's the the giver of life. He's the living one. He's the one that we have to be connected to in order to have life, in order to bear fruit. He also told us that we're the branches, right? In this image, we're the ones that have to stay connected. We're the ones that have to stay connected to the source. We can't have life or bear fruit on our own, in our own strength. God the Father, he told us, is the gardener who removes the dead wood or trims or prunes the fruitful branches so that they would be even more fruitful. And the takeaway from all of this was what? Remain in the vine. Stay connected to Jesus. Abide in him. Walk with him. Stay connected relationally and obey him. Walk in his ways. And if we do, he says, we'll bear fruit. We'll live lives that honor God, that produce good fruit in our hearts and impact in the world. will be a blessing. And then right after this, in case we have this whole image working, 9 to 17, he's going to fill in some of the details and, and move beyond the image and talk about application, what this will look like in your life. So notice how he starts in verse 9. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Now remain in my love. So the first kind of chapter of our user's manual of life in the vine here would be life in the vine is marked by love. Okay, life in the vine is marked by love. Love in a number of directions, you see in verse 9. First, he talks about the Father's love for the Son. Do you see that? As the Father has loved me, he says, so have I loved you. Now, throughout the gospel, Jesus has been showing us, telling us about his relationship with his Father. The love between the Father and the Son. See, in, in the doctrine of the Trinity, what we believe the Scriptures teach about God is that we worship one God, eternally existing in three distinct persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And so within God himself, do you see, there is love. Within God himself, there is relationship, the Father's love for the Son, the Son's love for the Father, the Holy Spirit there as well. So we think of this this perfect love within God himself, between father and son. And Jesus is telling us that that is how he has loved us. There's this perfect love between the father and son, and that now extends from Jesus to his followers, to each of us who have trusted in Christ. 
So we think about the Father's love for the Son, and then Jesus mentions clearly what? His love for us. So have I loved you. It's repeated in verse 12. You see, my command is this. Verse 12, love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. So we have verse 9, right? So have I loved you. He's reminding us how he's loved us. Verse 12, he says, as I have loved you. He's reminding us how he's loved us. We saw back in chapter 13, do you remember the same language, the new command Jesus gives? Love one another, love each other, as I have loved you. So repeated multiple times here in these chapters is, as I have loved you. Jesus reminding us of his love for us. That's the starting point of the gospel. That's where we have to begin as his followers. Not that we loved God and that we were seeking after him and that we came to him. No, this is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us. Verse 13 tells us how he's done this, right? By laying down his life for his friends. There's no greater love. And so Jesus didn't just tell us that he loved us, but he showed us on the cross. He demonstrates his love for us, Romans 5 says, and that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. I'm so glad that Jesus starts here. Think about how I have loved you, right? The model for your love for others is to be my love for you. I loved you sacrificially, dying in your place. I loved you intentionally, leaving the comfort of heaven to come down in the incarnation and draw near to you. I came to, to seek you out, to seek and save the lost, right? To bring you home, to pay your debt. Think of how Jesus has loved, has loved you. And I don't know why, but it's so easy for us to forget. It's so easy for us to, to move past the, the heart of the gospel, of God's love for us. And I've shared this with you before, but sometimes I'll, in spiritual conversations with people, I'll kind of start with, or just ask them a question, uh, something like this. Hey, if you had to put in your own words what it means to be a Christian, or if you had to put it in your own words what the message of the Bible is, like, what would you say? And I'm not trying to like, like trick people as a pastor or like put a, you know, a lot of pressure on them and be like, you know, Jesus, Duke. I'm, not, I'm just genuinely curious, like what their perception is of Christianity. Like what, what, what's your perception of what the Bible says? And usually when I ask that question, people will respond with something along these lines. Well, yeah, you know, the Bible is about being a good person. The Bible is about you know, obeying God, you know, doing things God wants you to do. The Bible's about, um, you know, loving other people. The message of Christianity is like, hey, go and love people. And that's what God wants you to be about. You know, something like that. That's usually the message I hear in, in response. And as you hear that, you're like, that's not wrong, right? Because those ideas are in the Bible. In fact, our passage this morning is talking about the commands of God and doing what Jesus has told us to do and obedience to him. And it's talking about loving other people. So that's all in there. But what's left out or what's skipped over is the love of God for us. The love of God for the world. The death of Christ on the cross for our sins. That, that God has loved us. I don't know what it is, but sometimes we just so quickly jump to the commands and the obedience. And we, stop, we don't stop and look long enough at the cross. 
and the love and grace of God for us. That as I have loved you. And you see, when we do that, when we skip over that part, you know, move quickly past it to the, hey, the commands that God wants you to behave and God wants you to love other people and start to, you know, act right. But what happens is we start to base our relationship with God and our acceptance before God on our obedience and on our performance. I was, I'm accepted before God or loved by God because I've, you know, jumped through the hoops and I've worked hard and I've earned it or I'm a, I'm a good person, you know, things, things like that. Which is an exhausting way to live. And we become like the older brother in the parable of the prodigal son. We've talked about this a bunch here, right? The, the younger son goes off and lives a wild, reckless life. He goes off the reservation, literally, you know, leaving the reservation and going off in, in sin. And, and the older brother stays home and from the outside looks like he's the model son, you know? He stays home. He works hard. He does what his father tells him to do. And yet we see as Jesus tells that parable and it unfolds, we see that the older brother is just as lost as the younger brother. And sure, he's at home and he's kind of keeping the rules on the outside, but inside he has no no love for his father, no, no joy in his heart, no intimacy with his father. It's just dry, dead obedience, working hard, thinking he can earn his father's favor, but no joy. That's, that's dead religion. And religion isn't a bad word. It's neutral, but dead religion is a bad thing. <laughs> when it's just dry, just keep the rules without love. But the gospel starts, you see, with the love of God. As I have loved you. Let's start there. As I have loved you, Jesus says. Pastor Tim Keller puts it this way. We quote him often. I think we probably owe him some money from how much we, we quote him around here. But he's, he's written before that it's only in the gospel that the verdict comes before the performance. You see, so often in life, or, or the way we think faith or religion is supposed to work, it's like you, you perform to get the verdict, right? You jump through the hoops. You, you show you're a good person. You do good in the world, hoping you're going to get the verdict. Ah, good person. I, I've shown myself. God has seen. I'm, I'm worthy. We think that's how we have to do it. But he's, only in the gospel does the verdict come before the performance. Right? The verdict comes first. You are loved by God. You are accepted by God through the work and righteousness of Christ. Through simple faith in him, you're adopted, brought home in the family of God. The verdict comes in Christ. The security and salvation in Christ comes through grace, not works. Then comes the performance. Then comes the the life of obedience. Then comes the, hey, walk in my ways. But it's only in the gospel that we hear that verdict first. You are loved. You are accepted. You are welcomed home through the work of Christ, through no work of your own. So life in the vine is marked by God's love. But also we're called to love others, right? Can't skip over that part in the text. Verse 12, my command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. And then it's repeated right at the end of the little section in verse 17. This is my command, love each other. So Jesus makes it very clear. He's loved us and he calls us to love each other. So don't just enjoy my love and delight in this relationship and enjoy me. I I want that, but I also want you then to extend this love for other people. In the family of God especially, there's supposed to be this sacrificial, visible, tangible love for each other. 
And it seems like in Scripture, we've seen this in a couple different places, there's this principle that what you have received, you are to give. And so what you have received, you are to give. For example, Paul in Ephesians chapter 4 calls the church to forgive one another as God in Christ forgave you. Right? So you've been forgiven, you've received forgiveness, and so you then are to be people who extend forgiveness. What you have received, you then are to give. Or Jesus tells the parable of the unmerciful servant. Do you remember it? Where one man owes a huge debt and his master forgives him this massive debt, lets him go free. And then that man who was forgiven goes and instead of forgiving those who owed him a small debt, he started to choke them and, you know, hunt them down. It's like, ah. And Jesus' point is, if you have been forgiven so much, shouldn't you then extend forgiveness and mercy? Right? So if you've received forgiveness, you give forgiveness. If you've received mercy, you are to give and extend mercy. And so Jesus says here, if we've received love, his love, we are to give his love. That which we have received, we are called to give. And in fact, loving other people is evidence of having received the love of God, right? If we sense that we have been deeply loved by God, we have this life of love, this relationship with him because of his love, then it will show itself in love for others. Think about how First John puts it. Whoever claims to love God, yet hates a brother or sister, is a liar. That's a, that's a pretty strong word. He's not pulling any punches there. Like, hey, if, if you say you love God and you don't love people, you hate your brother or sister, like, you know, you got like part of it and we're going to, you know, help you kind of, you know, he's like, you're a liar. <laughs> he doesn't sugarcoat it. Not that we're going to be perfect in, in loving other people, but if we claim to love God and have this hate in our heart and, and this disregard for the needs of other people, and we're selfish and harsh and unkind and rude and just don't care about people's situations, it's going to show that we don't really have this love relationship with God that we think we do. See, God is love and he has loved us in Christ. And so we then naturally are to extend that love to those around us, to seek the good of those around us, to be concerned about the needs of those around us. So life in the vine is marked by love. We're called to it. The next point comes in verse 10. So we read on, it says, if you keep my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept my father's commands and remain in his love. So he's talking about abiding, about remaining And he says, what, if you keep my commands, you will remain in my love. We mentioned this last week, and Pastor Lee preached on this a few weeks before that in in John chapter 14, the the unbreakable link Jesus makes between loving him and obeying him. And so in our user's manual of life in the vine, point number two would be life in the vine is marked by obedience. Obedience is not a bad word. Sometimes today we hear obedience, we think, ah, legalism, ah, judgment, ah. And yet Jesus is quite clear, hey, he calls us to obey his commands. Our love for Jesus is shown and demonstrated by our obedience. Our lack of fruit, our lack of obedience shows that something else is going on in our hearts. And again, it's not that we'll be perfect. 
If, it, if we truly love Jesus, we'll never sin again, something like that. But if we love Jesus, there will be evidence of that love in how we live, in desiring to obey. Like the song we just sang, we have no other king but Jesus. If that's the true cry of our heart, then we will follow the king's commands and trust his word. Now, have you guys heard of the, have we talked about this before, the, the five love languages? Have we talked about this before? The five love languages, it's this book, I don't know when the book was written, but it's this, this helpful idea, right? That, that there are five main ways that we like communicate and give and receive love as people. Um, you know, quality time, words of affirmation, uh, acts of service, gifts, physical touch. Okay, those are kind of the five different ways that people give and receive love. And it kind of talks about how we all have different, um, like, ranking of those. So like some of those are really important and meaningful to us. Like, man, if if your love language is quality time, if someone like comes over and just, you know, sits with you over a cup of coffee for the afternoon, you just feel so loved. Like, oh, that person cares about me so much. Um, Just feel so loved. Others of you, if that happens, you're like, oh, that was kind of uncomfortable. And I really wish they would have just like washed my car for me. And you know, then you're probably a acts of service sort of person, right? So we have different love languages. And what happens is, you know, you take any two people and they have different love languages and then they get married. And then they have to work through, like, why, this, why don't I feel loved or why don't they feel loved? I feel like I'm communicating love to them in the ways, you know, I know how, and yet they're not receiving it as love. And so it might be that you have different love languages. And so what you think is communicating love, they're like, oh, that's pretty low on my list. And I really, you know, would rather you do these things, you know, that sort of thing. Um, and so the question is, in light of this, what is Jesus' love language? If we want to communicate, express love for Jesus, how do we do that? What's his love language? And I think according to this passage, it's obedience. And you're like, that's a trick question. That wasn't one of the five, Pastor. You can't do that. Um, And I think you can make an argument that, you know, for each of those five with our relationship with the Lord uh, in different ways. But I think the main one Jesus is getting at here is obedience, right? If you love me, you'll obey me. You'll remain in my love if you obey me. Later I'll say, you're my friends if you obey me. Like what I really want is you to listen to me and do what I say. (laughs) That's like what I really want. (laughs) And I have to point this out just because today, you know, in certain Christian circles, um, and we, you know, we all bump into this or have experience with this, like, well, the dial on, on love will get turned way up. Like we love singing about, talking about the love of God, right? And it makes us feel great. But then we'll just kind of turn the dial on obedience way down. And it, it creates this environment where it's like, we want to feel good and rejoice in the love of God. And that's a, that's a good thing. That's a right impulse. But then we turn down the, the knob on obedience, like, it's really not that important if you, you know, obey the Bible. Like, and you can kind of like, you can have Jesus and have your sin too, and it's not a big deal. And, you know, just, it's okay. Um, and of course there's grace. And of course there's space for people to work out walking with Christ. And yet there, there's this clear call in the scriptures to obedience, right? To, to obeying Jesus and doing things how he tells us to do things and holding one another accountable to that. And so uh, it's, it's, we need to be careful, right? That we don't turn one knob way up and turn the other way down. They're both there in the text. And, and so where this battle is going to be in your own heart is with a couple of key areas, right? With your time and with your money and with your relationships um, and with kind of your, your affections or your heart and your thoughts, okay? So as you think about your life in those big areas, that's where Jesus is going to often confront us and call us to live in ways that maybe are, don't feel supernatural to us. Don't feel supernatural. 
Uh, right? We're going to feel like the way Jesus is calling me to spend my time or my money or order my relationships or things I'm supposed to say no to or yes to, that that's sometimes difficult for me. And we're going to have to uh, answer the question, will we obey Jesus in this? And will we live according to his commands and his ways? Or will we think that we know better? And I mean, in Luke 6, Jesus says of some who come to him, why do you call me Lord and not do what I say? Right? Far be it from us to be uh, walking in those ways. If this sounds a little harsh or unloving, notice the next point in the text, though. It says, if you keep my commands, okay, we're talking about obedience, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in his love. I've told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. You, you see that? If you're in like an underliner, you should underline that, that I've told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. So my teaching, my commands are so that your joy may be complete. So the next chapter of the user's manual, life in the vine is marked by joy. You see, do you believe that Jesus is for your joy? The Christian life is not to be some dry dull drudgery where we're all just kind of grumpy and unhappy and constantly just can't, you know, can't lift our heads up at all because we're so downcast. You see, Jesus said, my, my joy may be in you. Like my peace I'll give to you, he says elsewhere. Like my love, I want my joy to be in you. He's for your joy. He wants us to flourish and have life and life to the full. That's why his commands are given. Not to keep us from joy, but to lead us into more joy, more fulfillment, deep gladness in our hearts. And if you go back to the, the very beginning of the story, the first few chapters of the book of Genesis with our first parents, Adam and Eve, you'll see that the way the serpent tempted Eve was to, to get her to believe that the fruit of the tree was good for her, right? Actually, it'll be better for you if you take hold of that fruit. Good things are ahead if you break the commands of God and take the fruit. And so at the, at the heart of sin is this, this belief, this distrust of God. God doesn't know what's best for me. And his commands are keeping me from joy. And so there's more life and more fulfillment if I break his commands. God doesn't know what's best for you. Or if he does, he's not really for you. And so he's going to keep you from it anyways. So we don't trust God that he's for our joy. And yet Jesus tells us here, I've told this to you so that my joy may be and that your joy may be complete. I want you to have a fullness of joy. That's why God's commands are, are given to us for our good, for our flourishing. Uh, in her book, Confronting Christianity, author Rebecca McLaughlin argues for the surprising and counterintuitive ways sometimes that biblical teachings lead to flourishing. And she points out how research, not just amongst Christians, but just research out in the world will often confirm uh, the Bible's teaching on a number of topics. And she points out things like the Bible's teaching on generosity or on gratitude or on meaning in life or on uh, perseverance in the midst of suffering 
or on the importance of self-control or uh, the goodness of forgiveness. And she'll point to, hey, the Bible says, you know, all these things are important and how to live in these ways. And all this, you know, research is being done and showing that people are actually happier, more joyful, more fulfilled when they do things according to God's word. We're like, oh, isn't that surprising? (laughs) It's great. And even uh, atheist social psychologist, Jonathan Haidt, says this, surveys have long shown that religious believers in the United States are happier, healthier, longer lived, more generous to charity and to each other than are secular people. And so even secular observers are noticing, like there's something here to this whole faith thing, to this whole Jesus thing. And of course, as believers, we're like, well, of course, (laughs) Because God is God and he knows what he's doing. And so his, his word is truly a lamp that guides us. His commands truly are good for us. Like, like fences that he set up. Fences not to keep us out of good things, but to keep us from driving off a cliff. Right? To keep us from harm and danger, running off and getting lost. Not to keep us from joy. Like the walls of a tank are to a fish. Good barriers that keep them alive. Now, one more, one more word about this whole joy thing um, as it relates to modern, modern day. If you, if you like fell asleep right now, it'd be a great time for you to wake up and you know, tune in here. This is really important. Today, often the cultural narrative that we're given is that there's, this, there's these inner, de- inner desires. Like your, your true self is deep down in your heart somewhere. And it's going to show itself by these desires or impulses that come up out of it. And in order to be happy and joyful and fulfilled, you have to follow those desires. Right? Those are telling you who you really are. And so you have to follow wherever they lead, no matter what parents or culture or scripture or whatever says, you have to, in order to be happy and fulfilled, you have to follow those desires. You have to embrace them. And, and if you restrain them, it's, it's damaging and harmful to you. It's bad for you to, to put a hindrance on you fulfilling those desires. I just want to point out, um, that's problematic for a number of reasons. Um, one of which is that historically speaking, this is a really modern way of thinking about joy and fulfillment and, and goodness, living the good life. Okay, this is like the last century century and a half since Freud, really, um, where, where people have started to think this way, that rep- you know, any sort of repression is bad and you have to just let it all out, whatever it is. Before that, okay, uh, for a long time, people realized in, in all sorts of different cultures, right, that there are going to be good impulses and desires that come up out of your heart and there are going to be some bad ones, right? Or there's going to be things that come up with out of your heart uh, that you're to embrace and cultivate and move towards and are virtuous. And then there are going to be some things that come up out of your heart that you're supposed to say no to, right? And restrain and that you don't want to act on. Again, simple question. Have you ever wanted to do something, like really wanted it, and you realize that if you did it, it would be a very bad thing, right? Like if I act on this impulse, I, I will go to jail, you know? Or, I, you know, there will be big consequences and I really should say no to this thing in my heart, right? We, any, you know, sane person is like, well, yeah, like, of course there are certain things. And and yet sometimes we've gotten to this place where we're like, Hey, in order to find joy, in order to find fulfillment, just like, man, blow the top off, whatever it is that's coming up out of your heart, just like, go for it, embrace it. That's going to lead you to life. But again, most people in the, uh, look back throughout history, 
going back into the ancient world and for the majority of human history have realized, not just Christians have realized this, that in order to flourish and have life and fulfillment, there has to be some kind of filter you put on your heart, right? There has to be some way to determine and discern, well, gosh, I'm a really complicated, complex person, you know, the, the, the impulses and, and desires in my heart are often conflicting and all over the place. And so I need some kind of way to filter that and decide, well, like what, which are the ones that I act on and which are the ones that I say no to. And so traditionally there's, uh, you know, a number of filters that people put on. There's, you know, culture, um, there's, you know, family tradition, things like that. Um, and clearly uh, scripture, Jesus is claiming to be like, Hey, let my words, my commands be the way that you determine. Let me set the agenda for right and wrong. Would you obey me on that? Would you trust me on that? That, that use my word and my commands as a way to order your life? Because what happens is without a filter, if we just go wherever our hearts go, it sounds like freedom, but it's actually slavery. It's slavery to self, slavery to have to get what you want, slavery to go on whims. And if you, if you embrace that fully, it's going to really lead to a, I know I'm not very old, um, but it's going to lead to a destructive life. It's going to lead to damaged relationships. It's going to lead to a lot of heartbreak. Jesus is claiming to, to be able to give us the, the filter, the, his commands to direct us to flourishing and life. Pastor John Mark Comer puts it this way. My, my constraints, talking about the, the constraints of scripture, uh, my constraints have the potential to set me free from the tyranny of my own flesh and forge me into a person of love. So it's my constraints, it's the commands of Jesus, the teaching of God's word that can lead us to joy, that can, that can free us from the constraints of being a slave to ourselves and every impulse and desire. And instead, if we embrace those constraints, can forge us, shape us into people of love and virtue and joy as we're connected to Jesus. So life in the vine is marked by joy. We trust that Jesus knows the way. Next, life in the vine is marked by friendship with God. This is a fun one. Friendship with God. Jesus goes on verse 14. You are my friends if you do what I command. I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I've called you friends. For everything that I learned from my father, I've made known to you. It's a powerful word, right? Jesus says, I do not call you servants any longer, but friends. If we obey. Friends and servants, he's saying both are going to obey commands, but friends know the master's business. Right? That's the, the distinction he's making. Verse 15, you know my father's business. Right? So as followers of Jesus, we're given insight, revelation, the very heart and plans of God on display for us. Only two figures in the Old Testament were called friends of God, Moses and Abraham. But now Jesus is saying this incredible thing that to, to his disciples, to anyone who would follow him and obey him, I call you my friends. What a, what a privilege to be called friends of God. And he looks at us and calls us friend. And think about then the, the, the revelation that we have, right? That, that we know the master's business, essentially, Jesus is saying. Think about what these disciples and now what we on this side of the cross are aware of the plan of salvation unfolding. 
the, the full picture of the gospel, the coming of the Holy Spirit, the birth of the church, the gospel spreading to the nations, the coming of the Messiah, fulfilling all these Old Testament promises. You see that the people in the Old Testament just had like shadows and, and whispers of what was to come. And now we as uh, people of God on this side of the cross can see so much more than our brothers and sisters who have gone before us. I mean, what a privilege to have these things laid out for us, to have Jesus tell these things to us. And so notice with me the, the balance here in the text. He, he calls us to obedience and he also calls us his friends. This, this, this friendship language about conveying love and enjoying one another and, and intimacy with Jesus. So obedience and friendship. And here's what we're going to do. Some of us will have the tendency to drift to one side or the other there. And some of us will like drift, you know, really far towards the obedience side where it's like, really, like you, you, you better, you know, follow the commands, you know, like we're like really serious about this and it's really like really intense. There's a lot of pressure and it's really kind of like dry and really lacking joy and just like obey, like, mm -mm. Um, you know what I'm saying? And then on the other side is the people go too far to the friendship side and are just like, hey, Jesus is my buddy. You know, Jesus is my homeboy. Like we're just, you know, him and God and I are good. And there's no awe, there's no reverence. There's no sense of worship and, and, and uh, you know, fear of the Lord in their hearts, right? And so clearly both, both of those extremes are, are bad. <laughs> and, and what Jesus gives us is this reality of both overlapping, that, that yes, we're called uh, to obedience. We are called to obey, and yet there's this deep friendship and intimacy and joy that we share with the Lord as we walk with him. And so be wary, friends, of, of either of those extremes. Speaking of friendship, this, this week, um, Amber shared this with me on, on Instagram. She came across this posting of uh, kids in the third grade writing letters to God as an assignment from their teacher. And it's, it's amazing. I, I wanted to share some of these with you, what these kids said to God in these letters. Uh, number one, dear God, how come you didn't invent any new animals lately? We still have just all the old ones. Love, Johnny. Right? That's... Next one. Uh, dear God, this, this is good. If you give me a genie lamp like Aladdin, I will give you anything you want except my money or my chest set. Like, bold move, bargaining with God like that, right? You can have it all! Just not the chest set. Okay, next one. Dear God, thank you for the baby brother, but what I prayed for was a puppy. <laughs> I think the wires got crossed a little there, God. You misheard me. Really wanted, you know, brother's cool. Really want the puppy. Um, and this is the last one, letter four. Is, is Reverend Coe a friend of yours or do you just know him through business? <laughs> you guys just like work acquaintances or are you guys really friends? What a good question, right? And we could extend to each of us. Are you, are you a friend of God or, or just an acquaintance? You know, you keep a formal business relationship, you know. I mean, you show up on Sunday and you're cordial, you know. You're on, on good terms, but like you don't really want to invite him over to your house because that gets a little too, too close, you know, a little too intimate. So you keep your distance. Are you a friend of God? And I think where this will show up mostly is in our prayer lives, to be honest. If our prayer life is dry or non-existent or all um, just ritual and routine without actual 
expressing our hearts to the Lord. Um, that tells us something. That maybe the friendship piece, the intimacy, enjoying God is a bit off. So life in the vine is marked by love, obedience, joy, friendship. Last one, fruit. Verse 16 it says, You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you so that you might go and bear fruit, fruit that will last, and so that whatever you ask in my name, the Father will give you. So notice he, he reminds us of our calling and of our election, right? You didn't choose me, he tells his disciples, but I chose you. Now you might object and say, well, wait a minute. I mean, didn't the disciples decide to follow Jesus? You know, didn't they leave their nets and make decisions to leave their families behind and go and walk with Jesus? Well, yeah, they did. They did make choices. They did decide. We, we can sing, I have decided to follow Jesus. That's a biblical idea. We, we, we make a choice to follow Jesus. And yet, and yet, at the same time, in the doctrine of election here, Jesus is pulling back the curtain and showing us this deeper reality, this more fundamental reality, that, that he is the one who chooses and calls us. That he came and sought us and, and brought us home when we were lost. He's the one who makes the first move towards us. He chooses us. And there's great comfort in that. The doctrine of election, wherever it shows up in scripture, is not intended to instill fear, but to instill comfort and encouragement to those who are in Christ. Because think about it, if salvation is our idea, and like we, we're the one, it's just us making the decision to follow Jesus, then if we start to struggle and things are getting rough and you know, we're kind of like slowing things down in the whole kingdom movement, you know, maybe Jesus is going to turn to us and be like, look, man, like you're, you're really slowing down the group here. You know, we're, we're going to kind of cut ties and maybe it's best if you go your own way and like, thanks for wanting to be with me and all, but like, we're going to, we're going to, you know, we're going to keep moving sort of thing. But if, if he chose you, right? It wasn't that you chose me, but I chose you. Then there's, there's ownership there, right? There's, hey, I, I've brought you into this. I initiated this. You are, are walking with me because I called you and brought you here. This was my idea. I appointed you. So I'm, I'm committed to you, right? I'm not going to let you go. So my idea in the first place. Yeah, it's been pretty bumpy, but you're still here. Don't worry. You're still safe with me. I'm walking with you. You see, there, there's, there's comfort in that. Because I chose you. This was my idea. I brought you here. And so that, he says, you might go and bear fruit. And we'll see this consistently throughout Scripture, that we are blessed to be a blessing. You look at the Old Testament through the New Testament. God calls us saves us, lavishes his love on us, and then calls us uh, to be his uh, people on mission in the world, to bear fruit, to love people, to proclaim the gospel, to make disciples, to see his kingdom come. So in our user's manual this morning, I know we've covered a lot of territory, but the chapters, life in the vine is marked by love, by obedience, by joy, by friendship, and by fruit. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you once again for your word, and we um, admit that we've covered a lot of ground this morning, Jesus, in your teaching, and um, we need your help to understand it and apply it, and I'm sure that for each of us, there maybe was a different point that, that stood out more than the others, and we just trust you and your spirit as you convict us and shape us and, and, and really highlight what we need to hear this morning from your word. Um, thank you for leading us to life, Thank you for loving us uh, enough to die on the cross for us. Uh, we worship you and you alone, Jesus.
It's in your name we pray. Amen.